Have you ever felt like you no longer had any good reason to expect things to get better? You have given your all, done everything that you felt was at your reach, and uh, the situation remains hopeless. Perhaps it seems even more hopeless precisely because you tried it all, right, to no avail. I hope you never felt like that. But I do think there are good chances that you have. This world, after all, it's, it's not exactly a fair place. And it's definitely not always an easy one. And I think in the very breath in which we say that, we also need to look around, not just this room, but this world. We need to look around and recognize that very likely, for most of us in this room, in this church today, that experience has still come within a context of a certain amount of privilege. And I don't mean with that to dismiss whatever pain or sense of loss or despair you may have experienced or may be experiencing in this very phase of your life right now. I don't mean to dismiss that. Death, loss, loneliness, financial distress, broken relationships, foreign families, identity crisis, and so many more things that we might add to this list, they can happen to any and each of us. My point is only that in terms of statistical probability, let's call it that, because I don't really know the story of, of each of you. But those of us gathered here today in one of the wealthiest corners of the world, we are unlikely to be part of those who have experienced the full weight of hopelessness as they are crushed by the inequality of a world system that has no interest in allowing them to break out of poverty, misery, displacement, or oppression. For those who are in, in a place like that, in a situation like that, their experience is doubled down with all the other senses of despair and hopelessness that we here might experience. Because we experience it also, don't we? And where do we turn to? Where do you turn to? when you find yourself in such a place of hopelessness. Wherever you may find yourself on the social spectrum, right? Where do you turn to? Into this uh, rather bleak scenario, I would like to bring a very unlikely image. Or rather, I would want to invite us to explore an unlikely image that St. John, the gospel writer, brings. John has 
already presented Jesus into the narrative. The story we read today is from the second chapter, as we divide the Gospel of John. He has already presented Jesus into the narrative, and he has already had Jesus going around, gathering some disciples, some people who are starting to follow him, to listen to him, to what he has to say. But now John is about to introduce Jesus' ministry as being something more than that of a, of a rabbi, of a teacher. Right? There were plenty of rabbis in first century Judaism. Teachers who went around and gathered disciples to themselves and talked about the law and the prophets. But here John is about to introduce Jesus' ministry as being something more than that. Now John is about to introduce the first of the signs, which is how John the Gospel writer calls Jesus miracles, which is the language we find in some of the other Gospels. And this sign that John starts with, to put it that way, is both unique to the Gospel of John, and it's actually rather peculiar. And we read about it in uh, the chapter 2 of the Gospel according to St. John from verse 1. And I will, I will read from you and I read from the NIV. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with, waters, with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he, told the, he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Each of the gospel writers, right. each of the gospel writers has taken the story of Jesus, the living memories and the living stories that were circulating among the first generation of eyewitnesses. And he wrote it down to tell the story and the significance of Jesus. Each of the gospel writers did this. And in doing that, they had to necessarily leave some things out. John himself speaks of that in the end of his gospel. If I had told in all the stories, I would feel books and books and books. So they had to leave some things out and they had to highlight other things. 
And each of the gospel writers made a conscious strategic decision as to how and when they told each of the stories. If you've never done this exercise, go and you know, read, read the four gospels. You'll see they tell the story differently. Some things seem to be in weird orders. So why would John introduce Jesus' power with this story? He had healings, he had deliverance, he had calming storms at his disposal. All these stories that were circulating and landed on the other Gospels. Yet he starts by telling the story of when Jesus kept the party going at insistence of his mother. The story is, it seems almost incidental and adoptal. What, what is this? And it does perhaps show a display of power. And in this season of epiphany, which is the season in, in the church calendar in which we speak of the revelation of Christ as God and the revelation of God as Christ, perhaps we could settle at that and say, well, that's what that is, right? Stories about the miraculous production of wine by gods and religious figures were actually not uncommon in first century Near East. So perhaps that, that's all that this is, right? It's a subtle claim of divinity or of divine powers by this new rabbi. You use a trope story and there you go. It's done. You're pointing out to his divine powers. But keeping it at that would be missing out on the genius of John's gospel telling. And also, I believe it would be missing out on why this actually is a story for us today. Because John is definitely not just telling us an anecdote about Jesus. Though we don't have a time for an for a in-depth dive into the story, let me unpack some of the things that are going on here. First of all, we need to understand that running out of wine at a wedding party in the first century Near East is not the same thing as running out of wine in a party in Norway in 2023. It's not the same thing. This wasn't about running out of the nicest excess amenity in the party, right? The nicest thing to have, and now, oh no, I'm going to have to drink sparkling water instead. That's not what this is about, right? This was about having to cut the celebration short. This was about hospitality. Wine in this context was not a, a, an extra, it was a staple drink. And it was used for several reasons that had to do with the access to clean water. It had to do with cultural reasons. Yeah, so wine was what you had. And not having wine meant not being able to continue the party, which mean, meant not being able to show hospitality, which means that all these people that had come for that would now have to go home. And cutting the party short in that sense was cutting hospitality short. And that would be a huge shame. Right? It would be public shame. Yeah. 
it would mean that you don't have enough. And if we consider how important this was, it might be worse, worth also not simply presuming that they had hired a bad wedding planner that didn't do the math right. That's what we often presume. People drank too much or you, know, or you didn't plan it well. But when we think about how important this was, and these wedding celebrations could be a week-long celebration with the whole community, then we might wonder what might be the reasons that they ran out of wine. Because this, after all, this was a village celebration in the Galilean outback, in poor country. This wasn't a posh party in Jerusalem. This was a village celebration in the outback. What, what's going on here? Maybe this couple didn't have resources. Maybe they're out. We don't know, but there's a lot more that can be going on here that we might just presume if we just read the story without understanding something of the contents. And once we venture into that imagination then, right, of lack and of plenty, of the possibility of hospitality or the impossibility of it. Once we wander into that imagination, we also might consider how the image of marriage and wine were used in the Jewish religious scriptures and tradition into which this gospel is, is telling, from which John is saying, and in which this context of the wedding in Cana is happening. And Jewish prophetic literature especially so what we call the prophets, uses this marriage metaphor as a metaphor for God's covenant with his people. For the covenant between God with his people that guarantees that God will look out for his people and that the people would be faithful to this God. And in this prophetic language, also of the prophetic literature, the abundance of wine is in a scatological image of restoration. When you will have your land, your land will flow with milk and honey and the vines will grow, right? What is the first thing that, Ab- that, sorry, that Noah does in the story of the ark and of the destruction of the world? He plants a vine, plants a vineyard. It's a symbol of restoration, of new life, of new possibility. And here we have a wedding celebration running out of wine. Poor village, a wedding celebration running out of wine. Into this scenario comes the sign. And we should have a bell ringing right there, right? John doesn't call it a miracle. John purposefully, throughout his gospel, calls it a sign. It's pointing to something beyond itself. Into this scenario where hospitality no longer seems possible and the favor of God seems to have run dry comes the sign. And there are two dimensions to this, uh, of this sign that the language of this story does not want us to miss. The first is the sheer, almost absurd abundance of it. 
to, to put it shortly, those jars were way too big. The jars that the story describes used for ceremonial purposes. Those were common. You had jars for ceremonial purposes where they would do their washing. But the sheer size of which they are described are completely disproportionate to what would be common, and especially to what would be common in a village in Galilee. They are way too big. And also, the wine is way too good. This Abundance. And the second thing is that this is, as I have been hinting at already, it is a miracle from the margins. It's a miracle in this outback. And when, uh, when Jesus tells these servants, he doesn't call the master the, the master of the ceremony, right? He doesn't call the bride. He doesn't call the groom and says, hey, hey come here. Let me, let me show you what I'm going to do. You know? I'm going to solve your problem. No, he calls the servants. He says, fill the thing with water. And, and John is sure to let us know that the servants knew, but the master of the ceremony did not. So here you have these servants bringing this abundance of Good wine. And there's this reverse, reversal of honor. And there's a reversal of expectations. We could go on. But as you see, there is already a lot going on in the story that John tells us. And there's another detail here that reveals the literary genius of John as a gospel storyteller. His, his, and that is the expression, the hour. We often get caught up with the whole woman issue when, you, when we read this story. There's been so much discussions about that. Why, why does Jesus reply the way he does to, to Mary, right? Jesus, the wine is running over. Woman, what do I have to do with this? Uh, as far as we know, that's not, a, that's not a, a pejorative, harsh term. But it is a bit of a cut. It's not like it's not exactly super gentle either. It's like what? And we get caught up with that. But John is, is pulling us to another language. Which is, My hour has not yet come. What does, what does John mean by that? My hour has not come. It's a really weird reply. My hour has not come. And we might be excused for thinking that he means that he didn't plan on starting his display of power there at that party. You know, something like, come on, mom, you know, I was waiting for a sick person. <laughs> no, it might be wait, like something like that. We might be excused for thinking that that's the thing, except for the fact that John has a very purposeful and consistent use of the expression, the hour in his gospel. And it refers always to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It refers and points to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To the wholeness of his ministry, but how it's, it's, it's fulfilled and has its, its main right visibility and thing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So with that expression, John is encapsulating the ministry of Jesus Christ and he's telling us when and where there seems to be no hope left, no hope of redemption, no hope of hospitality, no resources left. At the dry wedding party with no wine or the cross where the Messiah bleeds. That there Jesus comes and comes with abundance and with abundance of grace. John is is opening this (laughs) His gospel with this story as a bookend that connects it like a wormhole to the very end. And then all of that in between gives us a lens, a frame for when we're reading all of this gospel. And all those places of despair where Jesus meets people, of hopelessness. Jesus comes and he comes not only with redemption, he comes with an abundance and an abundance of grace. And he comes with an abundance that comes from from the margins, that comes from the unexpected place that subverts the systems of meritocracy and all of those stuff. And it's God coming and coming lavishly with grace, unexpected, undeserved, overflowing of a taste and a quality that we could never have expected to come and especially not to come now when everything seems to be lost. And that invitation, it is for us today as well. That as followers of Christ, we are called to believe in the abundance of grace. To believe in the abundance of grace. And that, for the Gospels, is not just a theological handle. That is very concrete. And we could put it a bit differently. Say, in a world in which we are finally, I would say, all having to reckon with the limitation of resources in which we're all having to realize that that wine is not going to last forever, right? And I say all of us because the poor have always known, right? The poor have always known. But suddenly we all have to deal with it. And in that context, in that place of despair, we are called to believe in the abundance of grace. But perhaps we still struggle to understand why this abundance of wine might be good news for those who lack the other things that we deem more essential, right? And we should still struggle. But there's more in the Gospel of John. The story continues, and closer to the hour that John refers to, right, to the death and resurrection, we have Jesus again dealing with the fruits of the vine and again talking about abundance and this time with an invitation 
and with an admonition. And this story comes in the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. And this is one of John's I am declarations in the mouth of Jesus, in which Jesus comes and says, I am, and by saying I am, he directly connects his language to the language of the God who reveals himself through history. I am that I am, I am that is present, and here this I am that says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I am divine. And this language of this text, and again, we don't have time to go into all of this, but in this section of the Gospel of John, and going into the verses beyond it, there is a central language of, of belonging in term, with, the ter- with the term to abide, to abide, to be with. Abide in me would be another translation. Live in me, be with me, abide in me. And there's a language of intimacy with God and with Christ that is connected to a language of abundance of fruit. And there is a welcoming into the community that drafts itself into the very person of Christ and to into, and to into that community experience the fruitfulness of all the good things that God brings into the world. And there is this uncomfortable language of the branches that are cast away and that we struggle with, but we often struggle with that because we, we tackle it individually. Right? And we think, well, this is about what I do and I don't do. But here Jesus is talking about our drafting and our belonging into this community that sets itself in Christ. And in Christ bears fruit. And what is the fruit, right, that we bear in Christ? So here John brings these languages together. And, invi- and we have Christ inviting us, inviting those who listen into his intimacy with the Father, into this place where suddenly abundance and fruitfulness come where it's not expected. What does it mean? To believe 
in the abundance of grace. When there seems to be no hope. And that has spiritual dimensions. It has very physical dimensions. It has emotional dimensions. In a world in which we are finally, as I say, having to reckon with the limitation of all sorts of resources. We are called as Christians to believe in the abundance of grace and we are called to believe it with our whole selves. We are called to believe in grace with our minds, with our hearts and our spirits, and with our bodies. Where do you turn to when you find yourself in such a place of hopelessness? Where do you turn to? And sometimes our answer has been we turn to Christ on some metaphysical plane, right? But here Christ is putting himself in the middle of it all. And saying we turn towards each other with Christ in our midst. We see Christ with us. We see Christ with us. And in that way our declaration or our steps, our insistence on grace and hope, it's, uh, it's, it's here. It's here. We are called to believe in grace with our minds, with our hearts, and with our bodies. We are called to believe in grace by practicing hospitality, even when hospitality seems impossible. We are called to believe in grace by daring to hope that it is possible for new wine to come in the desert. We believe in grace by daring to believe that in a context of war, there can be peace. We believe in grace by declaring words of grace so that they may bring peace and not more war. We believe in grace by dealing with our material resources as if grace was possible. Possible in the face of real need. We believe in the abundance of wine by sharing, right? By being, by daring to get these water. It's what we have, right? Well, that's where we draw from. That's what we offer. And we dare to believe 
that it can be transformed. We, tor- we turn towards each other with Christ in our midst. I love John as a, as a, as a, as a storyteller. Right? Here we are in a wedding in Cana. Wine is running out and suddenly wine is pouring over. Here we are in a world where generosity and hospitality and seems to be running dry. Is Christ here? We say He is, don't we, as a community of faith? We say it every Sunday. What does it mean then to believe in His grace? Abundant and overflowing. To believe it with our minds. To believe it with our hearts. To believe it with our songs. To believe it with our bodies. Suddenly it's not just an anecdote, right? And what do we do with that? Is to not close the metaphor. But to let it speak to us today. To let it speak to the places where we are Where we seem to be running out. Sometimes we seem like we're running out of mercy. Sometimes we seem like we're running out of patience. Sometimes we seem like we're running out of the ability to love others that are very different from ourselves. Sometimes it feels like we're running out of, res- of, fin- of physical resources. Sometimes it feels like we're running out of the ability to love. I think it's an extravagantly outrageous message that the gospel brings, but that we so desperately need. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you that he may give you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Serve each other, serve the world, serve the Lord joyfully.